0: As the 80s rolled into the 90s, Johnny Boy D'Amato, from the outside looking in, seemed to be on top of the world. He was the acting head of his own crime family, with close allies in John Gotti and the Gambinos, and muscle like Anthony Capo always watching his back. Upon closer inspection, however, Johnny Boy was drowning in his own vices and paranoia. D'Amato's love of the high life was well known. From his love of drink and drugs to his gambling addictions, Johnny Boy was beginning to get a reputation among mobsters in the know. Some of his vices were becoming well known in the streets.
1: He also had many problems and one of them was that he apparently he owed everybody a lot
0: of money. Even though he owed money to mobsters throughout New York, Johnny Boy appeared to have an even bigger vice women. Despite having a wife and family at home, D'Amato had a stable of Gumar's in New Jersey. He was not shy about being seen all over town with other women on his arm. One evening, he approached a beautiful 20-year-old blonde who would eventually change his life forever. We'll call her Tina S. Needless to say, she accepted his invitation. The relationship blossomed from there as she and D'Amato were soon inseparable.
2: I actually walked into a nightclub one evening and uh, he had called me over. He said to me, there's a place in the city that's a beautiful restaurant. He said, I'm not gonna ask you out for dinner. I won't be taking your phone number. He said, I'll just expect you there at eight o'clock Friday evening. And if you're interested, we'll continue from there. I was a little taken, but it didn't scare me away. It actually excited me. He had a power over me that was hard to describe.
1: Tina S. was uh, just over 20 years old, but John was very charming, very persuasive to her.
2: He had bought me a vehicle, some fur coats, and lots of money, (laughs) Um, whatever I wanted. I, I just asked, and I got.
0: Tina had officially become Johnny Boy's side piece. On his arm, all over the city, he gave her anything and everything she asked for, from cars to jewelry, fur coats to spending money. D'Amato was now spending more time squiring Tina around town than he was running the Di Cavacante family business. This was a La Cosa Nostra no-no. Mafia members are never supposed to disrespect their wives and families in such a public fashion. As they grew closer, Johnny Boy became more demanding of Tina, that including asking her to swing.
2: One evening it started at dinner. We were having dinner at Abe's Steakhouse and Johnny broke the ice right away and had approached a girl and said, she goes with girls. So I said, what are you talking about? He said, she goes with girls. And he looked directly at me like, you're going with the girl.
0: While Johnny Boy was busy living the swingers' lifestyle with Tina, the feds were busy trying to finally bring down John the Teflon Don Gotti. After several unsuccessful indictments and trials that ended with not guilty verdicts, the FBI had come up with a new plan of attack. They had Gotti and his associates under constant surveillance, and that included Johnny Boy. Initially, D'Amato was unfazed by the feds' attention on him, at least on the surface.
1: The FBI dug extremely deep
2: in their uh, hunt for John D'Amato. They were watching him from different locations. They were following him everywhere he went. He used to make a joke of it, and he would throw ice chips at them, which I thought was really childish, but that was Johnny. Schoolboy antics aside, with the feds sticking so close to him, it was clear that Johnny boy was running scared. I used to get in the car with him all the time, and he would tell me, like, not to speak in the car. He would put his finger up to his mouth, like, don't talk.
0: D'Amato's devil-may-care attitude towards the FBI was about to change. The FBI was closing in on the most powerful man in La Cosa Nostra, who also happened to be Johnny Boy's guardian angel. The feds finally tracked the Gambinos where they discussed all their family business. The Ravenite Social Club in Little Italy. It was a well-known place to law enforcement. FBI agents wiretapped the Teflon Don's Hangout, But like usual, Gotti stayed a couple steps ahead of them. Inside the Ravenite, Gotti would have cassette tapes playing the sound of white noise, making it impossible to capture any conversations. On top of that, the Dapper Don had a habit of holding his business conversations
2: on the move. John Gotti was notorious for going on what we described as a walk talk, where he and the person he had to discuss something secretive, not all mob business is open to everybody in the mob, there were times where a captain would have to speak with his boss, John Gotti would take that person, and they'd go outside. Going outside, they're evading the the possibility of a bug.
0: The FBI's luck soon would change when told by informants that the Dapper Don and his crew were using a woman's apartment above the Ravenite to conduct Gambino family business. Nettie Sorelli was a widow Her husband Michael had been the caretaker of the Ravenite Social Club. When he died, she was allowed to stay in the apartment two floors above the club, with one condition. When John Gotti needed to discuss sensitive family information, she would take a walk. After installing a bug in the apartment, the feds would strike gold.
1: During this long diatribe, John confessed uh, to two murders. He confessed to ordering the hit on Robert D. Bernardo. He confessed to ordering the hit on Louis Molito. Both he claimed that Gravano was urging to have murdered. He also talked about a third guy named Louis de Bono, who was gonna murder, another partner at Sammy's. Uh, John detailed also his control of different labor unions. He also detailed uh, how much money he's making from different illegal activities. It was our smoking gun, is the best tape of the entire electronic surveillance. And you come, these surveillance tapes say prosecutors will prove Gotti is a ruthless crime boss of the Gambino family responsible for the murder of among others his predecessor Paul Castellano shot dead outside a New York steakhouse.
0: Gotti was arrested and indicted and as word leaked out about the wiretaps the news shook Johnny Boy to his core. Tomato reacted by diving deeper into his vices to numb the paranoia and fear that was consuming him. This spiral led him to some dark places and would soon put him in grave danger. His actions on one night would set off a chain reaction of events that would alter the Di Cavacante family forever and mirror a well-known soprano storyline His girlfriend, Tina, describes the night in question in her own words.
2: Johnny wanted to watch me with another man and I didn't want to and he insisted. So when Johnny insisted, you had to do it. And as I was doing it, he got up and he stormed out of the room.
1: He was disgusted by that or appeared to be disgusted by that. And then he went away.
2: I was looking for him and I went upstairs and I looked to my left and then that's when I saw him with um, a very rather large black man and uh, Johnny was um, having oral sex with this man.
0: Tina, all of 21 years old at the time, was distraught. Anyone at that age, in that situation, would probably confide in a friend and ask for advice on what to do. Unfortunately, especially for Johnny Boy, Tina chose to confide in his right-hand man, Anthony Capo. Little did she know, in mafia culture, there were very strict rules about homosexuality. Tina had unknowingly sentenced her boyfriend
2: to death. Anthony didn't even want me to finish what I was saying, and I was like, no way, absolutely not, not Johnny. Anthony Capo was uh, distraught he viewed it as an embarrassment to him, to the crime family, to the mob in general, and brought it to the attention of other members of the crime family.
1: For people to find out, especially within John D'Amato's circles, that he was engaged in homosexual activity was a death sentence.
0: Capo, shocked and angry about what he'd been told, knew something had to be done immediately. While Johnny Boy was out of town visiting Florida, he called an emergency meeting of the Cavacante family Capos, to discuss what action should be taken. Here are Anthony Capo's own words, recreated from court testimony. She
1: told me John D'Amato and her were going to sex clubs in the city and swapping partners, and that John was engaged in homosexual activities. It shocked me. I knew John for a long time. He was the boss of an organized crime family, Thank you. he couldn't be acting that way. Anthony felt he just had to tell other people about this because supposedly the Mafia has a rule which says you can't be gay and be in being the Mafia. Nobody's gonna respect us if we have a gay homosexual boss sitting down and discussing Cosa Nostra business with other families. I don't think any family would be too pleased to hear that uh, their boss was uh, actually found in a gay bar. I don't think that would go over too well. At all.
0: Now, anyone who tuned into season 6 of The Sopranos is probably having flashbacks to the Vito Spadafora storyline. After hearing of Johnny Boy's exploits, Vito, like Johnny Boy, was married with a family. However, just like D'Amato, Vito had a few habits that he kept secret from both his families, like a penchant for gay bars and sexual encounters with other men. Both men had secrets that could get them whacked if they ever spilled out into public view. Vito was blowing the security guard. <laughs> Son of a bitch! Catching, not pitching.
1: He's not gonna know I told you?
0: You ain't gonna have no problem from Vito, believe me. What are you gonna do? It'll be okay. Get him to pay for some therapy. look, why don't you go out front, get yourself a sandwich, any kind you like, huh? Soda. uh, When we're done here, somebody will take you back. I want to kill the fat faggot myself, be a fucking honor. Cut off his piece of deal and feed it to him.
2: There could be no mistake now.
0: I can't believe I stuck up for him. I feel like I've been stabbed
2: in the heart. We can't have him here in our social club no more. I mean, that much I do know. The social club? He's got to go.
0: Just like in the Soprano scene above, the decavacante family leadership, including Vinny Ocean and Steve the truck driver, agreed unanimously. Johnny boy, he had to go. There was a major stumbling block, however. The Costa Nostra rules are very clear. The only way to whack the boss of a family is to go before the commission and ask for permission. There were two problems with this. First, they would have to admit to the five families that their boss was gay, something the De Cavicante family was determined to keep secret. Second, by going before the commission, the Gambino family would never agree to have their hand-picked leader whacked out, meaning a possible war would break out between families. The D Cavacante leadership decided to forego the commission and kill Johnny Boy in secret, a move that could put all their lives at risk. If the five families found out what they'd done, everyone involved would have contracts on their heads. After getting the green light from John Riggi in prison, Steve the truck driver gave the contract on Johnny Boy to Anthony Capo. D'Amato's days were numbered.
2: When a decision is made for whatever reasons to whack somebody, usually it's the guys who are closest in the crime family to the intended victim who are gonna actually do the work. It'll be easier for them to get close to the guy.
0: Meanwhile, as more details began to emerge about the Gotti wiretaps, Johnny Boy had become convinced that the FBI was closing in on him as well. D'Amato feared he'd be arrested because he had discussed a murder in the Ravenite Social Club. In a panic, he decided it was time to go on the run to Florida. In October of 1992, Johnny Boy paid a visit to Tina's Brownstone before disappearing. After leaving Tina's, Johnny Boy would never be seen again. Anthony Capo and a friend picked him up a block from Tina's Brownstone in D'Amato's Cadillac. While Johnny Boy thought he was escaping to Florida, the Cavacante family had other plans. John D'Amato was in somewhat of a panic.
2: Talking about the FBI, about how they have him on tape, and I'm going down and the party's over. He told me he was leaving. Didn't give me an answer as to where he was going. They drive him towards a section
1: of uh, Brooklyn called Mill Basin, and while he's in the car, Anthony Capo
2: turns around and shoots him in the head. In the car while they're driving. Anthony turned to him and shot him five or six times, I think.
1: They drive him to a house in Mill Basin, and they pull into the garage, they close the door, and they pull him out, and it's a big mess. They roll him up in a rug, which is what they usually do, but before they do that, they check his pockets. And they find some money, which they clean off and pocket.
0: And just like that, Johnny Boy was gone. The only clue left behind being D'Amato's abandoned caddy. Other than the leadership circle inside the Di Cavacante family, no one had a clue where he was. And those who did knew if they said a word, all of their lives were at risk. Rumors swirled on the streets and throughout La Cosa Nostra. Was he dead? Was he on the run? Or was it the worst-case scenario? Was he cooperating with the FBI and in the witness protection program? It would remain a mystery inside both the mob and law enforcement for over a decade. In the meantime, the Cavacante family was once again without an acting boss. Steve, the truck driver, had only one name in mind to replace Johnny Boy that's Giacomo Jake Amari. Jake had earned his stripes as a ruthless captain before being promoted to underboss after John Rigi was sent to prison. It was during this time that he developed a close partnership with family consigliere Vitabile, and Amari was part of the leadership decision to whack Johnny Boy DeMato. Jake Amari was the first boss of the Di Cavacante family who had the stones to thumb his nose at the five families in New York. He disobeyed the commission's rules and actively recruited soldiers in New York. He also operated a social club in Little Italy, much to the dismay of his Big Apple brethren. This would eventually lead to Amari and Vitabile being sent for by the commission. And in the mob, when you're sent for there's no guarantee of making it out of that meeting. Not only did the two men walk out of that meeting, but a peaceful resolution was reached, with the Di Cavacante leaders agreeing to no longer make members outside of Jersey and South Philly. He made a good boss, but like his predecessor, a storyline straight out of Sopranos would end his reign. In 1995, Jake Amari was diagnosed with stomach cancer, just like his namesake, Giacomo Jackie Aprile, the acting boss in The Sopranos. And just like Jackie Sr., the cancer was terminal.
2: One of the gangland's youngest alleged leaders died late this afternoon at St. Isaac's Hospital. Jack Como Authorities called Aprile the acting boss for 74-year-old Ercole Eccle DeMeo currently serving a life sentence in Springfield Federal Penitentiary. Authorities believe he was made acting boss for the North Jersey Mafia two years ago. April was 44 years old. Thank you, Heather, for that live report. Turn now to Chuck. Going
0: to God damn to it! Work. I was just there. He told me he wouldn't go today. He's a good man. Let's okay. do a toast. Give me a toast. To a great man, to a great leader a great friend. And just like when Jackie died on The Sopranos, Jake Amari's death would set up a power struggle inside the real life crime family. In the TV version of this storyline, Uncle June held the official title while Tony was the unofficial acting boss. T was the one everyone in the family went to and the one who acted as if he was the head the DiMeo crime family. In the Di Cavacante family, things were a bit messier. It's
1: almost a corporate phenomenon. You have, everybody sees an opening, and they're all circling to see who's going to get the opening.
0: Like his television alter ego, after Jake Amari's death, Vinny Ocean was named an acting boss of the Di Cavacante crime family. Although things were a bit more complicated than Tony and his uncle sharing duties in The Sopranos, Stefano Vitabile, instead of appointing one acting boss, had decided on a three-man ruling panel that would be in charge of family business going forward. Along with Vinny Ocean, Jimmy Palmero, and Charlie Big Ears Majuri rounded out the Di Cavacante leadership panel. This had the makings of a good old-fashioned mafia power struggle, with Vinnie determined to become the one and only head of the D. Cavacante family. Vinnie had another problem he was dealing with, and it involved a familiar nemesis to his mafia brethren across the Hudson River. Rudy Giuliani had used the notoriety he achieved as a U.S. attorney going after the five families, as a springboard for his political career. Rudy
1: Giuliani decided that it was a really bad idea to have strip clubs in neighborhoods. So they would come up with a law that would essentially eliminate any strip club that was within 500 feet of schools and churches.
2: He had a lot of problems because they were trying to close down uh, the nude bars. He was just incensed about it. Didn't they have better things to do with their time?
0: The city came up with a new law called the 60-40 rule to corral the strip club industry. For the time being, Wiggles found a loophole to continue operating as a legitimate business. This was far from the only problem on the horizon for Vinny Ocean and the D. Cavacante family. Their leadership panel was a tenuous situation at best. Meanwhile, a high-profile robbery would bring the attention of local and federal law enforcement to the D. Cavacante family's door. Most importantly, the FBI, believing Vinny Ocean was the next John Gotti, decided it was time to put the Jersey mob out of business. And this time, they had an informant close to the family that would help them do just that. 60-40 is a strange rule.
1: If more than 60% of your business is a strip club, then you're a strip club and you can't exist within 500 feet of a church, but if just a little bit more, a little less than 40% is a strip club, you're all set.
2: You're not really a strip club. The 60% of the club is empty right now.
1: The 60-40 trick enabled Wiggles to stay open, but it was still the constant subject of police attention. It's funny how that's an assignment that a lot of the officers really seem to covet, uh, but they uh, they they send in undercover officers to see if it's really a strip club, uh, which is a really tough assignment. And they would kind of see what was offered in the VIP room.
2: Some people talk to the girls, uh, some people sniffing them hair for 15 minutes, and some people enjoying the dance. You know, watching girls dancing in front of them and a little lap dance.